0: And we will move on to our third speaker, Nathan Eisenberg. Lots of support for Nathan. Um, He's a part-time scientist, part-time climate activist, currently working in atmospheric modelling and data assimilation at the BOM, the Bureau of Meteorology. (laughs) Over the winter, he was personally the third highest user of Australia's largest supercomputer at the National Computational Infrastructure Centre in Canberra, we want to know who the second and first highest users are. Um, he's also a volunteer facilitator at the conversation based climate action group, Climate for Change, trying to change the conversation around climate change one intimate DM at a time. And in a previous job, he worked as a travelling planetarium narrator, which admittedly is the best job he'll ever have. Nathan. It's my, first. it's my first Labora story. Okay. Yeah. It's good. Um, so I just wanted to t- talk about my, uh, one of my favorite mathematicians uh, who is also, um, you know, also a pacifist, which I identify with, a mathematician and a pacifist, uh, with strong morals and incredible foresight. I don't identify with those things, but um, despite being famous for providing the basis of numerical weather prediction, um, he's also famous for having the worst forecast in, in history. <laughs> so um, in, in 1917, in the middle of, the f- of France during World War I, Louis Fry Richardson, then working as a driver in the Friends Ambulance Unit, made a very important weather forecast. He, forecast, he performed a forecast armed only with a table of numbers, which were observations of pressure, um, temperature, all over Europe. Um, those table of numbers and a slide rule. I don't know if you've ever seen a slide rule, but it's a... Yeah, probably never... Probably no one's seen a slide rule. Um, <laughs> but at the time, the established method of predicting weather was, was all done with charts, graphs, and, you know, graphical techniques. Um, but whereas Richardson's methods, on the other hand, had no charts, no graphs, and instead relied on the careful transformation of this table of numbers um, uh, via the step-by-step operation... Of a set of equations, it's a uh, pretty meticulous work. He set up the problem in this way: he split the map of Europe into 25 cells, each um, 200 by 200 kilometers, um, in a diamond. So, if you imagine with with uh, Verona in Italy at the bottom and Copenhagen in the north, that was his domain. Um, and then he took the observations from a previous um, previous day that was well known. Um, and he took all the observations from the center of each of those 25 cells. He took that as his initial conditions. And then he set to work meticulously stepping them forwards in time, plugging them into these equations by hand, um, and, and uh, until he finally got to his six-hour-in-the-future forecast. Um, it took him six weeks of manual calculations to do it. He performed it on a desk made of hay in, in an unused barn, Um, probably in his spare time after he'd been done driving around injured people during the First World War. Um, And despite being probably the most peculiar circumstances for a meteorological forecast of the time, the most notable thing about it is that Richardson got the forecast disastrously wrong. (laughs) Despite being... I mean, instead of forecasting a mild um, and rather pleasant change of one millibar of pressure in six hours, um, which is actually what occurred... Richardson predicted a change of 145 millibars, which would probably be the equivalent of forecasting, given the weather today, tomorrow a Category 6 cyclone um, in Melbourne, which, which isn't even a thing. Category 6 doesn't even exist. <laughs> it was completely unphysical. Didn't it? It, it, he knew it was wrong, basically. Um, so it is notable that Lewis Fry Richardson's weather forecast was so incredibly wrong, because mathematically, it was perfectly correct. His methods were, were valid and his calculations were correct. Um, so Richardson himself had an insight into this contradiction because he knew it was wrong, but he knew his methods were right. And so he said that his forecast, it was, he said of this, a fairly correct deduction from a somewhat um, unnatural initial distribution. Now, I don't know if the scientists know that excuse, but it's pretty much he was saying that his initial data were crap. Um, but crap data or not, Um, What uses a method that gets the wrong six-hour forecast six months too late? Well, so most respecting scientists face-to-face with such a mistake would have withdrawn and uh, perhaps sought to fix the the problem or at least explain it before telling anyone about it. That's what I would have done anyway. (laughs) However, Richardson was a true believer of the scientific process and so he wrote down his methods, his calculations and his embarrassingly wrong solution and humbly published it for the whole scientific community to see. It was called um, a, in a book called *The weather, weather Prediction by Numerical Processes*. And although he suffered ridicule from some of the most respected meteorologists of the time, and uh, I mean, one reviewer um, said of his book, he described it as a soliloquy on the scientific stage. It's pretty, it's pretty harsh. Um, the methods he developed, although he never saw of he lived to see it. The, the methods he developed now form the basis of modern weather prediction anywhere in the world. I mean, Einstein is famously known to have said, "The only way, the only sure way to never make any mistakes is to never have any new ideas." Um, so, can I get a show of hands? Who knows? Who's heard of Lewis Fry Richardson? Who put up your hand? There's a one man at the bar, and the bartender knows him. That's great. No, I didn't. no, that's what I expected. Um, yeah, he, he. Some some call him the unsung hero of weather prediction. Certainly, nobody's singing about him. But there are. There, actually, there are pl- plenty of people singing about weather in general. Um, it's not only a predominant topic for small talk amongst strangers, but it's also lyrically popular in music. For example, Gene Kelly, in, uh, who was famously singing in the rain, or the, um, the precipitation forecast of the planet Jupiter by the band Train, um, <laughs> and even the, uh, the bizarre forecast by the Weather Girls in 1983 with their camp classic, It's Raining Men. So granted the many songs about the weather, I'm, in general, I'm a little upset that no one's been a bit more specific about, um, with a song about modern weather prediction techniques. Um, I've never heard the 90s dance anthem of, uh, called the Iterative Integration Techniques of the Navier-Stokes Equation, despite its importance in forecasting rain, um, be that droplets of H2O or men falling from the sky. Hallelujah. In fact, I've not heard any people sing about Lewis Fry Richardson or his incredible work, at all. So for the next, for the remaining minutes, I'm going to tell this story and sing a little praise for the man um, who was the visionary um, of modern computational weather prediction as we know it, from a time when a computer was simply someone who was pretty good at manual arithmetic. So Lewis Fry Richardson was born in 1881 in Newcastle upon Tyne to a strict but loving Quaker household where he was encouraged to be inquisitive and sceptical a good experimentalist, really. There's an example of this, a conversation between uh, when his sister and and Catherine and her nurse walked past Lewis wearing their hats um, when he was about four. And uh, he said, where are you going? And they explained to him that they were going to the bank to put money in it. And he asked why, and they said to make it grow larger. Richardson explains from this conversation, he was left so wondering about this remarkable concept of money growing larger in banks that he took his own money um, a silver three-penny bit and a, and a new farthing. He found a shovel, dug a hole in a steep bank in the garden and put the money in it and covered it with earth. After three days, Lewis and his sister dug up the money to find it wasn't any larger. I was very disappointed, Richardson said, and felt that the, the word of grown-ups was never to be trusted. This scepticism for convention proved to be a great asset for the man. In his early career during a research position at the National Peat Industries in Newcastle, he was asked to tackle the problem, given the annual rainfall, how must the drains in a peat moss be cut in order to remove just the right amount of water? A very valuable question to answer for the company. Richardson found an approximate solution using a freehand graphical method but he was critical. Although this method of drawing lines of relation between the shape of the peat cuts and the rate of the water flow out of it was established and correct, Richardson was frustrated that the errors incurred when drawing the graphed lines um, would, 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 would have errors. It was after this experience that Richardson started developing techniques for solving, approximately solving differential equations using purely numerical methods, which would be accurate to the precision to which he knew the numbers and not how sharp his pencils were. These methods he would later use for his infamous weather forecast. In 19, later in 19, 1913, he'd graduated from King's College, Cambridge. He was offered the job as superintendent to the Eskdelmuir Observatory to take measurements of the Earth's magnetic field. Eskdelmuir is, is a remote part of southeastern um, Scotland, and it was put there because so that the... Geo- uh, geomagnetic recordings would not be interfered with. Um, it was a pretty cushy job and Richardson obviously had a lot of time to develop his ideas. Um, he, he had two patents out at the time um, for detecting objects using reflected sound waves. Um, this was before sonar. Um, in true experimentalist forms, um, he, following the tragic sinking of the Titanic in 1912, Richardson spent much time in a rowboat off the coast of Scotland splashing about measuring sound waves and testing his instruments. Because he was not just a keen scientist, he was, uh, throughout his life Richardson was also driven by wanting to reduce human suffering. He was convinced that science ought to be subordinate to morals. That's pretty bold. Someti- sometimes uh, these two interests were aligned, for example when designing tools to save ships from sinking. Um, but sometimes the technologies and theories that he was developing were appropriated for military warfare, particularly around this time. In a particular example, when he heard that his theories of atmospheric turbulence were um, of interest to scientists developing chemical gas weapons, he reportedly stopped his research completely and destroyed all of his unpublished notes. Richardson was a devout Quaker, um, who referred to themselves as Friends with a capital F, and as many friends do, aspired to live a quiet and humble life without any high reputation or aspirations. Um, He abstained from drinking alcohol or coffee and was also a staunch pacifist. In fact, Richardson quit his job at the British Meteorological Office twice in the name of pacifism. The first time in 1916, when he retired um, from that reclusive, cushy job to join the Friends Ambulance Unit in France, and the second time in 1920. After the war it ended, Richardson rejoined the Meteorological Office, but um, with the needing growth for, for weather prediction for the aviation services, um, it joined forces with the British Air Ministry, which was a managing body of the the Air Force, and so Richardson resigned, claiming that as a pacifist he would not work for the military. Indeed, he was strong-willed and remained a conscientious objective during both of the wars, uh, during a time when it was very unpopular to to be so, particularly as an academic. He was so driven by his distaste for violent conflict um, that he later changed career entirely from meteorology and established the field of mathematical analysis of wars. Using mathematical and statistical methods to understand the causes of conflict, he postulated several incredible quantitative relationships between two countries' likelihood of erupting in a conflict based on things like their relative languages um, or their religions or their amassments of arms or even the lengths of shared borders between the two countries. Uh, This was groundbreaking and obscure work at the time. And again, Richardson only received ridicule and criticism for it during his whole life. However, shortly after his death, his work was published in a book titled The Statistics of Deadly Quarrels, which is a nice name, and today the theories are well placed in plenty of uh, modern fields of conflict uh, geography and economics as well. So Lewis Fry Richardson made countless contributions to his many scientific fields, that of meteorology, mathematical psychology of war, and applied numerical analysis. I could probably go about my whole day of work just using the stuff that he came up with, and was elected as a fellow to the Royal Society in, in, in honor. But he also published pioneering work in the geoma- geometric field of fractals, which is uh, you know, curves or, or lines whose broken shape um, has the same pattern no matter what scale it's viewed at, like a, a snowflake, for example. Um, this work was merely the result of being sidetracked, trying to develop methods to measure the length of con- country's borders and coastlines to, to <laughs> complement his other work. So, just on a sidetrack, he just invented a whole new field of mathematics. Um, he also published over 50 papers, titled, some of them titled, How to Observe the Wind by Shooting Spheres Upwards and Cracker Balloons for Signaling Temperature. He is also, he is also known as the eponym of the Richardson number, a uh, ratio used to de- determine a, a fluid flow's tendency for turbulence. Um, but beyond this broad and excellent achievements, I think Richardson showed incredible integrity. Um, scientific integrity by publishing his results no matter what, despite them being embarrassing, but also a moral integrity, um, changing jobs and even scientific interests and careers to ensure that his work did not cause the suffering of anyone, which is something that I think all scientists, in fact, everyone, should consider as their responsibility. I'll leave you with one final bit of Lewis Fry Richardson's work. It's a bit of a prediction rather than a work. In his book describing the methods of weather prediction by numerical processes, there's a chapter where he reflects on the time it took him to compute a six-hour forecast. If you recall, it took him six weeks, and he estimates how a computer might—computer being a person just standing there with a pencil and 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 solving it. This is before computers were invented. Um, might try to race the weather, that is, calculate a weather, a future weather forecast in a shorter time than it was predicted. Basically do a six-hour forecast in less than six hours. Um, he estimated with practice that he himself, in, in a, perhaps in, in a more comfortable environment than a barn in the middle of the war, a computer could perform ten times faster than he performed originally. And if the time step of the numerical methods that he used were only three hours, meaning it would take two iterations to get a six-hour forecast, um, then he calculated that with 32 practice computers, and a map of only two cells instead of the 25, then they could keep pace with the weather. (laughs) By this example, Richardson estimated that 64,000 computers, again just people, would be required to race the weather on a domain of the entire globe, that being 2,000 cells. In his own words, that is a staggering figure. (laughs) And it is, and it's an organizational nightmare um, but Richardson imagined a way for this to be possible. In the chapter, he describes a forecast factory, where he imagines that these 64,000 computers are um, sitting in a large hall with, with curved stalls, like, like a coliseum, um, with Australia down at the front, perhaps, and England up at the back, and Antarctica in the pit. Um, so if you can imagine it. Um, uh, each computer focuses on solving one part of the equations for one of the cells, one of the 2,000 cells, and each team of computers sit in the corresponding section of the factory corresponding to that cell, looking to the solutions of their neighbouring teams for their boundary values to solve their own. Um, In the centre of the factory, there's there's an elevated stand, and the person in charge of the whole operation stands on it, who, like a conductor, ensures that the factory remains in sync. Um, It shines a rosy red light at the teams that are Going a bit too quickly, and a blue light, shame, shame blue light to, to the ones that are go too slowly. Together, the imagined computers of Richardson's forecast factory reproduced the arithmetic that he himself did in the Barn in France to produce a forecast to beat the weather. He also imagined that outside the forecast factory there would be fields and parks and mountains and plenty of fresh air, uh, for he believed that those who compute the weather should be able to breathe of it freely. Sparing only the point about this natural working environment for meteorologists, um, the prediction was incredibly accurate. By only exchanging 64,000 human computers for a comparable number of hardware processors, Lewis Fry Richardson's forecast factory and his numerical weather prediction methods are an almost perfect description of how cutting-edge weather forecasts are produced today. And remember, this was in 1920. Today we use parallel computing and resolve atmospheric models over grids um, by solving simultaneous equations. The grids are more refined, yes, the equations are very much more complicated, and we use more computers who are faster and rarely make mistakes or complain that their hands hurt. But the essence of the system is pretty much exactly the same. And still today the biggest challenge for numerical weather prediction is to try and race the weather and be able to produce an accurate forecast and communicate it before the weather arrives. So I think that Richardson's Forecast Factory is a stunningly prescient prediction, not only of modern supercomputing with parallel processes, but also of the model systems that make weather prediction accurate and possible today. I also find it a very beautiful and perhaps maybe a little ironic example of the powerful combination of the scientific method and the human imagination that from the insight learned from a very poor six-hour forecast in 1917, a scientist who was able to make a scientist was able to make an incredibly accurate prediction of modern scientific practice over a hundred years into the future. Thank you.